Well, if you'll take your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. I made it through the month of January, and while that may not seem like an accomplishment to most of you, January for me is like back when we planted the church. I did all the preaching on Sunday morning and on Sunday night and on Wednesday night, almost exclusively this month. And uh, I am looking forward to next Wednesday, Edward preaching again. He's going to pick up and take up a, a message series on Joshua in the Promised Land and the victorious life that is his. And Sunday night, the Sunday school teaching men begin with Keith Seaman with his first three lessons, and then after him, others will follow, and uh, it gives me the opportunity to pastor. And you say, well, I thought pastoring was preaching. It is an element of pastoring to preach. Uh, but uh, we are, Jessica and I have picked back up into the swing of having folks over on Monday night and Tuesday night and on Sunday afternoons. We enjoy that part of it because that's where we actually get to know you know what the needs are and see if we can help in any capacity in any way. Um, some of you ladies have been invited over. Uh, we have a tradition on Valentine's Day for those who are uh, widows or uh, their, their, uh, maybe their husbands aren't saved or uh, in some situation like that. And so the boys for those ladies are already starting to practice their violins. Um, we can't give away exactly what it was. Suffice it to say, Jessica's recommendation, of all of you that think she's the godliest gal in the world, hers was Elvis's teddy bear. <laughs> and some of you just thought, oh, man, my opinion of her went way down. We were going to have the boys voice that one and have him sing it, but uh, they'll have something else that I think will be good for those ladies on Valentine's Day uh, coming up here in two weeks. The Bible says here in Titus chapter 3 and in verse 1, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another." But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain or empty. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Father, help us this evening as we finish this little letter to Titus about how your work gets done. We have studied much already, two specific aspects, and tonight we tie the whole letter together. 
We see how we go about living the life that you've given to us. It is a gracious life. And then it therefore requires us to have gracious living. Bless us, I pray, in this hour and in this time as we examine the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Titus has been taught so far that to do God's work, there must be first godly leadership. Now, if you have your notes this evening, you can look at the back of them. I've got the outline for the entire book of Titus on there, or at least what we've covered uh, in your pastor's opinion of how we can break down this particular letter. We noted when it came to godly leadership, it began by choosing good leaders. Well, how do we choose good leaders? And we noted in verses 5 through 9 that you must watch their character and witness their conduct. You have to watch who they really are. It's easy for some leaders of men to say one thing and do another. We see it all the time. But in a godly leader, in choosing a godly leader, there must be a consistency between their character and their conduct. You watch their character, what they say, and you witness their conduct, what they do. The second thing we noted from verses 10 through 14 was that you confront the liars. Once you've chosen good leaders, you have to confront those that are the liars, either in your midst or those that are attacking you from without. In verses 10 and 11, you have to recognize them. In verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1, you have to respond to them. You can't just leave their lies there. They have to be addressed. They must be overcome. And then we noted the final aspect of godly leadership is that godly leader is challenged in his leadership. He's challenged in verse 15 to invest in those that are pure. Under the pure, all things are pure, he says in verse number 15. And then in letter B, we noted in the outline, we have to isolate the professors. And we said that in many instances. They profess themselves to be wise. It's very much like the college campus today where there's a lot of professors that think they're smarter than you. But the context here is also of those who are not true possessors of Jesus Christ, just professors in him. From godly leadership, we moved last Wednesday night to looking at genuine learning. The aspect in chapter 2 is that you and I should be people who want to learn. If you want to do God's work, you better learn how to do it. God does not stand for know-it-alls. There's none of us, even the godly leaders, there's none of us that knows it all. There's always a room for us to grow and to learn. We noted in chapter 2 the learning is in the selfless behavior first of the aged and of the aspiring, we noted last week. We came secondly to the fact that the genuine learning is as salvation's beneficiaries. We are the beneficiaries of the grace of God. It has appeared to all men. And in appearing to us, it teaches us certain things in verse 12. The salvation that we received and the benefit that is ours comes with a recognition and with a response that we must have. But third, we find that it was in the sure benediction. The very last verse, he's encouraging Titus to speak and to exhort and to rebuke with all authority. And he says to him, that is the process of engaging. The godly leadership engages in your life to genuinely teach you what God says in his book so that you can go live it. And then other good teachers in the church do the same thing. It's what godly leadership does. It brings into our life genuine learning. Not just the opportunities for it, but the obedience to it. 
And then he says in the final statement of chapter number two, let no man despise thee. He says, look, you're going to have to endure. There's going to be some people that will think they're better than you and will reject you. But Titus, as a godly leader who is genuinely seeking to teach others and learn himself, you're going to have to endure those that don't really like you. There's going to be some and sometimes within the church and oftentimes without the church, those who will despise that learning process. What brings us tonight to gracious living? That's what chapter 3 is about. Gracious living. So how do we do it then? He's told us the how begins with the who. Uh, in other words, to get the how done, you've got to have the right who, and that's good godly leadership. And you have to have in the people a kind of a what. What are we driving towards? And, and that what is that we want to learn, and the ultimate end is the why, and that is so that we can live. That's what he comes to in chapter 3. Put them in mind. Here's what they should be doing. Here's what you ought to think about. Here's how you ought to behave yourselves. Here's how you ought to act. Titus has been taught that to do God's work, there must be godly leadership followed by genuine learning, which will produce gracious living. That gracious living in our notes this evening as we dive right into our study is first in society at large. It's in civil society. So often we would look at or think that we should start within the church and work out. And what Paul is telling Titus is, look, these Cretans, these folks of the island of Crete, they're going to be out in the world 90% of their time. They're only going to be gathered as a church probably 10% of the time. And so he says to him, look, the true element of gracious living is not where everybody loves you and agrees with you. It's out in the world where most people don't like you. Or most people are not interested in you at best. And so he says, gracious living has to start with you and I thinking in the right way as we go out and engage others in the life that we have. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. God wants our good works to flow out in an impactful way to our society. In other words, we are not just to practice our Christian faith in here. We're to take our Christian faith out into every element of our life. The first way in which our good living and our gracious life impacts our society is that we, letter A, respect authority. Oh, how we have fallen as Christians into the trap that the progressive, anti-God, Authority-rejecting anarchists want us to think. We are beginning sometimes to behave just like them. Let's go protest! Really? The early church Christians in Rome met in catacombs as they were, their friends and relatives were slaughtered in the Colosseum. Well, they just didn't have a platform to protest. They were in a republic. It was no different than our country in a governing sense. You say, Pastor, are you saying that we shouldn't be engaged in peaceful protest? I'm suggesting to you we should exercise every possible way to influence the world through gracious living. And that begins by respecting those in authority. Do you know what we do not let our boys in our house say of our president? Joe. Well, there goes Biden. Have to be careful. Sometimes they come home from Nanny and Papaws and they say that a little bit more often than they did before they went to Nanny and Papaws. <laughs> we don't have Fox News at our house. It's okay. They're always allowed to go to Nanny and Papaws. 
It's President Biden. It's Governor Bashir. It's Mayor Jenkins. It's Judge Executive Covington. I drive past Joe Pat's house every day on the way to work. I wave at him as he and his wife walk their dogs. I may not agree with everything the judge executive of our county does, but he's my neighbor. He lives not too far from me. And if I want to reach him for Christ, I better not be going about tearing down his authority. The problem is when the Christians begin to tear down and not respect authority, there's no hope for that society at all. And we've forgotten that. We have fallen into the trap where we just loathe those that oppose us. And the answer is we're supposed to love those that oppose us. We're to do good to those that despitefully use us. Oh, pastor, that's not going to get you a lot of clicks on the Internet. I don't care. It probably might not get me a lot of amens in the church house nowadays either. But... Speaking ill of those in authority is never found in the Word of God. Jesus didn't even do that. Somehow we today in our Christian faith seem to go a lot further than Jesus ever did in His. The world is in serious trouble when Christians no longer respect the authority that God has put over them. We might say, air quote, Christians today are fighting mad. And we're not going to take it anymore, we say. What does that accomplish, actually? Nothing for the cause of Christ. Do you hope to win someone that you've just made your enemy? Good luck. We too often and far too quickly run to the phrase in the Word of God, we ought to obey God rather than man. I'm going to be real careful here. Christians, I have guns. But if the government comes and takes them, it's not affecting my Christian faith. (gasps) You can't say that. I mean, as an American, I can say that. But it doesn't affect my Christian faith. I mean, I'm going to step on a lot of toes here. Well, I don't agree with you. You cannot agree with me on the American sense. And I just told you as an American citizen, I believe it's my right. I'm telling you as a Christian, it's not something you can run to the Bible and say, we ought to obey God rather than man. <laughs> you going to do that? Jesus said, if you pick up the sword, you'll die by the sword. By the way, it's why the liberals, see, I can use the word. That's why the progressives, they mock the Christian faith. What are you going to do? We got bigger guns than you. <laughs> Our current president recently said about those that want to cling to their God and their guns. And I'm just suggesting that in a gracious life, we should cling first and only to God. It is not wrong to have those. You're not hearing me say that. Make sure you're listening very carefully tonight. I'm not saying those wrong. I'm saying if there's one of those that we're going to cling to, we're going to cling to God. And that's what he's saying here. There has to be a respect for authority from us. Not a disdain for authority. Now, there can be a distrust that is probably well-deserved in many instances. And it doesn't matter if they have a D or an R after their name. There can be a distrust or a process of having that trust earned in our lives once again. The point is is that we are to respect authority. Jesus himself said what? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things unto God that are God's. In other words, he said, hey, you just make sure which is your priority and which one has authority. 
God has the ultimate authority over all. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, the Bible says. But having said that, God has not selected which human government he prefers. He himself will have a monarchy someday. We don't in our country. And so we have a, what I believe is the closest form of a good biblical government, a constitutional republic made up of the opportunity to democratically elect those who represent us in that republic. But we need to have a respect for authority. And it seems to be that the single agenda from about the early 1900s, before the First World War, was to tear down our respect in authority. And they've done a really good job, even in the house of God, in the church house. We don't respect authority as we ought to. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. The word principalities and powers of that phrase is used elsewhere by the Apostle Paul when it refers to the demonic or satanic realm or those spirit beings that are ruling this earth, the God of this world right now. But this use here has no reference to that. It has the direct reference to the governing authorities of this world system. How do I know? Because he goes on to say, obey magistrates. The magistrates would be elected officials of the Roman government in the region in which these Cretans found them, on their own island. I put a couple thoughts in my notes here. I guess I've gotten out of order. That's the way it's supposed to be, I guess, sometimes. But pastor, they're running over my liberties. Your civil rights in Jesus Christ are immaterial. Listen, if they were all hinged to the U.S. Constitution, and I'm going to be real careful here, what would, the, what would the Christians in China do? What would the Christians in Russia do if they were all hinged to just civil liberties? I mean, there's some human, basic human rights. But the truth of the matter is, there are many martyrs through history who've given their life for the cause of Jesus Christ instead of being anarchist in their way. But pastor, the leaders in our country, our commonwealth, they're, they're tyrants bent on destroying our culture. I can see it. I watched it on the news. I know. But Jesus did not die for the United States of America. Amen. Oh, man. You didn't know you were coming for a non-political rally tonight. I'm just telling you the truth. That does not make me unpatriotic. We've got President's Day coming up. See, I know my holidays. Jesus did not die for our Constitution. While I love that document, and I think outside the Bible, it's the best written document this world has ever seen. Jesus didn't die for it. He died for mankind. The second thought, since I must move on. (laughs) Oh, tell us more. He says that we're to reject anarchy in verses 2 and 3. I don't know if you've watched, I have briefly watched on the computer, some of the riots that are going on in Atlanta and other places, and what went on over the last four years, three, four years, in many of our major cities. Do you know why there is so much anarchy? It's because we've gone soft on crime. In other words, those offenses that are wrong haven't been punished. And the Bible tells us that when the wicked go unpunished, 
It's the good that suffer. Here's what Paul says to Titus. And again, remember to whom he's writing. We noted in the very first message that the phrase Cretan, right? Oh, that guy's such a Cretan, right? It's an old term, more of like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it still has some resonance. The idea of a Cretan is somebody who uh, has kind of a boorish behavior. It's somebody that's acting a bit like a Neanderthal. It's somebody that doesn't care about the feelings of others. These were, this is where it came from. These people, they were pirates who would prey upon people who would be shipwrecked on their island by maelstroms. They wouldn't care for them. This is the people. And notice what he says in verse number two. He says, to speak evil of no man to be no brawler. He's speaking right to the Cretans, the Cretans. But gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse or varying multitudes of lusts and pleasures, living in malice, that is true hatred, Envy and hateful and hating one another. There was a deep loathing of one another. If you weren't careful, if you would read that, you would say, that sounds like my country today. And the answer is, it sure does. Because we've gone from being a gracious people. Yeah, but but pastor, if I live graciously, they'll take advantage of me. (laughs) Welcome to the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. The spirit of these verses tell of the anarchist's life, one who is in rebellion towards God and one who rejects all things that are good. Paul asserts that we are to avoid the first steps into falling off of good, gracious, social living. What are the first two steps he gives them in verse number two? To speak evil of no man. Now, stop for tonight and just think in your own gracious living in a societal sense. Have you spoken no evil of any person this week? And all of us would probably go, I probably didn't make it very long. I'm probably going to do that to you on the way home if I'm just being honest. (laughs) Because of the message you're preaching here. No, I'm kidding. I, I know you all love me. Speak evil of no man. To be no brawler, he says. The the idea of being a brawler means contentious and fighting with everyone. And I'm not going to make light of it. I am dumbfounded by it. But you watch in the news articles, left media or right media, and what happened in Memphis was atrocious. It was horrible. But then to frame it that these officers were motivated by some racial motivation is again itself atrocious. The point is is that that's the concept of brawling. One thing is terrible, and so that thing's so terrible, we have to come up with stuff that's equally as terrible, and everybody's just got to find the next thing to brawl about. It's the world we live in. I mean, Paul writes this 2,000 years ago. Nothing is new under the sun. Paul declares to Titus that the churches of Crete are to be different and we are to be different now than we were before when we were saved. In verse 3, look at the progression in the list from foolishness, that's the idea of living without a, a regard for God, to disobedient, to deceiving or being deceived, 
to serving differing lusts and passions. We are only motivated to serve or to do anything that pleases me. That's the only reason I'll be motivated. What does it make me happy? What does it do for me? This is an apt description of our modern age. Because it's an apt description of the human nature is why. Living in malice, that is absolute loathing of others. Envy, wanting what someone else has, hateful and hating one another. The idea of hateful is that in your spirit, in your character, you're hateful, but also in your conduct, we actually go about proving that we hate you by hating you. This is not a good list, but this is who we are. Paul's encouragement here is for us to remember the old life or to at least understand what man's fallen nature is so that we might have pity and compassion towards those who are still stuck in that way of living. That's what gracious living in society does. I reject living like them. And the problem is because they so take advantage of us and the grace of God, it's very easy to want to fall into that trap. Well, the Bible says an eye for an eye, Pastor. Hmm. Go and read that whole passage. Be careful as you do. We're not living in the Old Testament. We're not a nation as Israel was that needed to defend and protect herself. We are servants of the king who laid down his life for his friends. I can remind us this evening that there is no reason for us to hate those who act like they are supposed to act. Well, I just wish they would act better. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. A person that is living graciously understands that. They are living in anarchy. We are living in grace. It's the very reason we want to reach them with hope and with help that comes in Jesus Christ. What good does it do us if we live just like them or act just like them? Jesus' clearest teachings are those, as I mentioned earlier, found in the list of Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. We call them the Beatitudes. He says, and I'm going to summarize very quickly the thought, Jesus says, happy, blessed, or the word blessed means to be enlarged in, To be enlarged, happy, and blessed are those who are humble, who mourn or grieve, who are meek, who are hungry for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure, who are peacemakers, and who are persecuted for their faith. I don't know. I actually think I like the list better that we're supposed to avoid than that list. Then you're not living very graciously tonight. Gracious living will take on those attributes. That's who they will be. In society, as we consider it, we respect authority, we reject anarchy, and let her see, we reflect atonement. So we know what to avoid. We know what to do, respect authority. We know what to avoid, rejecting the anarchy. But who are we to be? We're to be reflections of the salvation we've received. That's what he tells us. Right on the heels of that terrible list, or the list that we were, he says in verse 3, but after that, after that kind of living, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. The grace of God appeared. This is the gracious living that should result then. Salvation is not from your good works, but it will produce in us a grace and a goodness to our works 
as we move forward in this life. It is the washing of regeneration, which is followed by the subsequent ongoing renewal of the Holy Ghost in us. His filling presence, the merciful presence of the Holy Spirit is shed upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ. And that power or that presence, that merciful giving of His presence provides the power for us to change how we both think and act, Paul says here. The last phrase that is given to us in verse number 7 might be the most powerful or the most important in chapter 3 to consider, especially within the context. He says, we should be made heirs at the end of verse 7. We should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That means we are being made into what a true heir should look like, be like, and live like. Our heirship is settled. When we receive Jesus Christ, we become the sons of God. We've received the power to become the sons of God, John wrote in John 1 and verse 12. Our heirship is settled, but do we reflect the atoning work of Christ? Do we reflect the family, we might say? Do we demonstrate the manifold grace of God that is in our life by the way in which we live? It is our eternal life manifest in our daily life, in our culture. That's how society changes. You say, well, I don't believe that. Listen, was it Descartes was the old French writer that came here? Not Descartes. Was it? De Tocqueville. Thank you, Chris. De Tocqueville, when he came here, that's what happens when you go off your notes as a pastor. Never a good idea, but... When de Tocqueville came here, what was it that he noted that made America virtuous and good? It wasn't our political structure. It wasn't our dynamism in our, our manifest destiny. It wasn't the sense that we had an industrious people. He said it was the glimmering lights of the churches in each little town and borough that he went to that was the hope of America. This is a French philosopher on liberty and government writing in the 1800s as he traveled around America in that time. It's not who's in office. It's who's sitting on the hearts of, who is seated on the hearts of those that believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. If Jesus was really ruling your life, then you're going to be concerned for your neighbor and you're going to share Christ with them. You're going to show the love of God everywhere you go. You're going to reflect atonement every time someone talks to you. That's what that last phrase means. We should be made heirs according to the assurance, hope of eternal life. By the way, eternal life does not happen in heaven someday. It has already begun here today. You are an heir, not then, but now. You've got to start living like this. This is why Christians, by the way, cannot blend into the world system. We must stand apart from it. Our social living must respect authority, reject anarchy, and reflect Christ's atonement in our life. This is what gracious living looks like in the society at large. Gracious living will be seen in our social living, but it will also be seen, number two, in sincerity. In sincerity. He moves in verse number 8 to saying, this is a faithful saying. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying, this is something you can trust. This is truth. You want truth? Here it is. That's effectively what he's saying. I'm winding down the letter. 
There's only seven more verses or, or about probably eight more, nine more sentences that you need to read. But I want you to listen up here at the end. He says, this is the truth. This is the, the most sincere I can be, Paul says. So I ask you, is what you believe real and true? A believer in a church with godly leadership genuinely wanting to learn from God, will have a gracious life that is sincerely or earnest in seeking to follow God. Sincerity begins, letter A, with ready attention. Notice what he says in the beginning in verse number 1. I did not use this phrase earlier on purpose, and I will here. He says in verse 1 at the very last statement, to be ready to every good work. Go down to verse number 8 and we read, In the middle of the verse, these things I will, that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. It takes mental preparedness and diligent attention to live sincerely gracious lives in the eyes of others. You cannot accidentally fall upon it. You cannot happen upon living graciously. You're going to have to be ready from verse 1, and you're going to have to be careful from verse 8 to maintain those good works. And I would say in every good work. You cannot fake, nor can you forsake a life lived by and in God's grace. He says you have to be sincere, and you have to give it your full readiness, your full attention. You must choose to do good works every day. Be ready. Be careful to maintain every good work. Might be a way of also reading verses 1 and 8 together. There's ready attention, but letter B, there's a real advantage. He gives another sentence. And any guys that have gone through discipleship with me, I always express as clear as I can, read the Bible in sentences. Uh, Sometimes I will read in church a couple extra verses that are in the sentence, but I won't preach on them, but it's still within that context of that sentence. And so in verse number 8, you have two sentences. This is a faithful saying, These things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Period. Stop. That's one thought. That's the ready attention. He moves on. But here's the real advantage of you having ready attention to your daily living or being focused in your daily life. He says at the end of verse 8, These things are good and profitable unto who? Men. You might argue, well, they're good and profitable unto God because I'm very theological. They are certainly pleasing to God. But can I tell you this? You living graciously doesn't benefit God at all. And you say, what I mean by that is this. He's still going to be God in heaven. But it is profitable for men. Now, God is glorified in that he gets good, but it doesn't change who he is. But you being focused, you having the ready attention that is necessary, the profitability, the benefit for this world is for the race of mankind. You might be your loved one's only hope for, re- for receiving Jesus Christ. You could read that verse that way. That's the profitability of it. It's the benefit. 
These things, what things, the attention we have in the way in which I conduct myself, these things are good and profitable. The first real advantage in gracious living is that it is good. The word good here in Titus 3 is good in its character. This means it is of an excellent nature. The works themselves are morally pure and perfect in their nature. They are good. The Bible uses three different words in the New Testament for good. And they have very similar uh, um, implication, but they have very different actual meanings. This word literally means, in its very essence, it's good. I'll give you the best example. When Jessica hands me a piece of broccoli and I bite into it, I say, Mmm, this is good. And when one of my kids hands me a Rolo or something with caramel inside, with chocolate on the outside, I bite into it, I go, This is good. Do you understand now what the word good means? Now, some of you are arguing, yeah, but the broccoli is actually good and the Rolo is not. And I would say to you, see me after church. <laughs> it's worked well for 46 years for me. There's a different word used in Galatians 6 where Paul encourages us as a body of believers to do good unto all men. That word good means to be benevolent. This word means that the act we engage in are by divine standards right. And so when he says it here, these things are divinely right. Do you know you can do no good thing in yourself? The only way that this can be accomplished is when you live in the graciousness of God himself. Gracious living. The real advantage is, advantage, there's the word I can say, is to you. Romans records that there is none that doeth good in their natural man. Here, Paul says that the works that the churches are doing are morally and principally good because of the new nature or righteousness within us. Gracious living indeed. The second real advantage is that gracious living is profitable. The word profitable here carries the idea of helpful or advantageous. In other words, the energy or efforts... That's the word work. We get the word energy from it today that is used many times in this chapter. The energy and effort then that I put forward by God's grace have real advantages to the person who is a beneficiary of that work. Mainly me where the grace is flowing through, but also to the men and women of society around me and to the church in particular. The final thing that we find in sincerity is there is a right avoidance. It's not only that there is a ready attention and a real advantage that he gives to us. He then tells us in verse number 9, but avoid foolish questions. You want to get off track real quick in gracious living? Start worrying about and wondering on the silly, mundane things that have no application or no practical use in your life. I cannot tell you as a pastor how many Christians have sat at our house and argued and debated with me about topics that have no practical application. Oh, are they deep theological things? Yes. How many angels can fit on the head of a nail? What day will the rapture happen? If you answered wrong, I'll never come back to that church. Then don't come back to this church. Avoid foolish questions. 
he says. Genealogies and contentions, strivings about the law, for they are what? Unprofitable. He just told us that when we live graciously, in sincerity, with ready focus and attention, there are real advantages, and one of those is that we're profitable. And here he says, if you live in that life where you're trapped in all of the little doctrines of the Bible, and I'm not suggesting doctrine itself is not right. Pure doctrine is important. But it's the silly things that people ask about the Bible that have no practical application to grace that you say sometimes as a pastor... What are you doing? What are you do- Why is this the important thing? Because it's important. To who? Just you? By the way, that's what these heretics that he's later going to name in verse 10 are themselves doing. Avoid foolish questions, genealogies, contentions. Paul addresses here the fact that some good-sounding men can lead believers astray. Sincerity and truth are essential for gracious living. The word heretic down in verse number 10 comes from a word meaning to choose. The implication then is that this is a person who chooses to cause division in the church by forcing other people to make the same choice he has to oppose either the pastor or the doctrine of the church or the principles that are in the word of God. This heretic is forcing people to make a choice to leave God or to muddy the waters at best. He says, look, just avoid people like that. Oh, pastor, sounds like you're going on a, a mission to kick people out. They're not in our body. Our body's healthy. I'm thankful for that. But I'm always on the lookout. Why? Because all the way back to chapter 1, God's placed me here as one of the godly leaders of this place that needs to be on the lookout for such heretics. And if I find one, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to admonish him once, and then I'm going to admonish him twice, and on the third time, you're out, buddy. Reject. That's what it just says here. By the way, this is the exact same principle that is given to us in Matthew 18. The Bible was wonderfully constructed in that it has support all the way through for itself. Paul says, if a person is asking questions that cannot be answered, worried about who begat whom physically or perhaps even spiritually, as he did in the book of 1 Corinthians when he addressed it there, if it's a person who's contentious about Bible topics rather than being gracious, is striving about particulars of the Bible that only God himself can know, Moses called it the mysteries of God, then that person is not profitable and doing all those things for their own vanity or their own selfish emptiness, he says. We are to warn that person about their hereticking. I'm not even sure that's a word. And if, to, if it continues, we are to avoid or reject them altogether. Why? Because the pastor's afraid of them? No. I've yet to meet somebody that I'm afraid of when it comes to the Word of God. Why? Because it has all that pertains to life and godliness. If I just stick to this book, I'm in pretty good shape. Is it because people in the church can't stand the controversy? And I would say that's partially true. We don't need the controversies. You ever been in a church where it's just a bunch of drama mamas and pouty papas? I don't have any other names for them. Everybody gets feelings hurt all the time. Don't do that. Don't be that church. We will never be that church. So how do we go about doing God's work as we close our thoughts tonight? Paul says it best in chapter 3 and verse 14. Look there with me and we'll close. He he says some 
personal statements to the folks on to Titus himself and to those who would be reading this or in, enjoying this as well in verse uh, 12 and 13 about people traveling with him and people that he would like to have brought to him. But notice what he says in verse 14, and he's speaking of those that are in his traveling party now. In other words, this is the old saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Notice what he says in verse 14, and let ours also, well the ours also is who's in our traveling companionship as opposed to just who was with Titus there on Crete. And let ours also learn to do what? Maintain good works. Why? Because they're necessary for use that they be not unfruitful. How do we go about doing God's work? Well, we do God's work with godly leadership through genuine learning, which produces or brings about gracious living. That's how you do it. That's a church. Now, that is a simple letter to a pastor. Do you understand as to why I take First, second, and, first and Second Timothy and Titus so important in my life? Because as a godly leader... They are my roadmap to lead this place. We will always attempt to do God's work with these three elements always being a part of who we are. Father, I thank you for the word of God.